I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ruth. It's an Old Testament book, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And there is an excellent example in the first chapter of the witnessing life. Lifestyle evangelism or the witnessing life. I want to read verses 14 through 17 of chapter 1. And they lifted up their voices, that is, um, Naomi's uh, daughters-in-law. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go with her if you wish. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death hearts, you and me. I think we most often think of evangelism or witnessing as the act of sharing the gospel in a, on a one-on-one basis with somebody, verbally sharing the gospel, or the preaching of a sermon to a large group of people. But a closer look into biblical evangelism makes it apparent that Witnessing is the act of being and the act of doing as well as the act of saying. And that there is in the life of a person that which draws that person and attracts that person to Christ. And that evangelism involves more than just telling somebody. It is involved involved in it is the witnessing life itself. Now that is not to um, uh, deprecate or minimize verbal witness. I think that we're all aware of the fact, the incontrovertible uh, responsibility that everybody who is a Christian has to share the gospel with other people. And I know that I speak to people tonight who have never really ever shared verbally with anybody and led, uh, confronted anybody or led anybody to a decision concerning Jesus Christ verbally. And that is a responsibility that you and I cannot uh, avoid as a Christian. But it is also true that that witness, verbal witness that one would have must be substantiated by the lifestyle that witnesses itself. The old adage, I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day, has a lot more relevance than most of us are comfortable with. But it is a fact of life that a Christian is a person who has first had a personal experience, encounter with Jesus Christ, and a Christian is a person who has a lifestyle that bears witness to that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that lifestyle is a part of what it means to be a Christian. 
If you're old enough to remember going to Falls Creek um, and hearing B.B. McKinney, he used to always be at Falls Creek, several songs and Baptist hymnals. One of them that we've sung before, I used to sing as a, as a kid, goes like this. Your life is a book before their eyes. They're reading it through and through. Say, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? The witnessing life, your life, a book before their eyes. We're talking about the credibility of the Christian witness that is substantiated, the foundation of which is a lifestyle that points to Jesus Christ. Credibility. I have a feeling that sometimes people who listen to us think about us or uh, have the same kind of uh, feelings that you and I have when we see an athlete on television um, promoting some product. And they sell anything from toothpaste to deodorant. And I'm looking at that. What I'm thinking many times is I wonder if they really use that. I wonder if they really know what they're talking about. So Sybil Shepherd gets on television and is the spokesman of the beef industry encouraging people to eat more beef. And there she is slicing into this beautiful piece of steak, you know, that's on this uh, gorgeous plate, and she's taking a bite of that. We learn later that Sybil Shepherd is a vegetarian, never eats beef. And sometimes I think it probably some people look at us and say, now I'd like to, I'd like to hear your message, but I want to see the substantiation and the authenticity of that message before I hear it. Uh, anybody who has had any kind of uh, experience in communication has uh, read something of Aristotle's model. It's called the, the, Aristotle, uh, uh, the rhetoric of Aristotle. And these communicators use the rhetoric of Aristotle teaching communication. Aristotle claimed that people are persuaded from resources in the message, in the audience that he calls the auditors, and in the speaker. That is, there is a logos in the message. There is something in the message that I can believe. That message is believable. I I respond to that. It moves me. It touches me. But there is what he calls pathos in the audience. I've come because I want to hear some word of help and hope for me, and I have a burning desire for some word from God or some word that will, that will meet a need in my life. Then he says there is ethos, ethos in the speaker. That's what we're talking about tonight, the ethos in the speaker. There is something about you that's believable. I have a burning need in my life, and that message you have is, is a message that moves and touches me. But the reason I believe that is because you are believable. That's what we're focusing on. And so Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, the reason why anyone does not respond gives assent, does not give assent to your opinion, or his aid to your benevolent design is in you. He refuses to see you as a, accept you as a bringer of truth. You may feel you have it, but he does not feel you have it. 
for you have not given him the authentic sign. I love that statement. I, I'm intrigued by that statement. You have not given him the authentic sign. When you give me the authentic sign, I believe what you have to say. Now the real heroine in the story of Ruth is not Ruth. The book bears her name. She's not the heroine. And the hero of this story is, is not as, although he's the near kinsman and the redeemer. The real heroine, the focus of this story really is upon a woman named Naomi who had the authentic sign. And there was something about her life that was so attractive that these daughters-in-law were willing to leave their homeland and follow her to Judah. Never underestimate the way you live your life you're either pointing people to God or you're pointing people away from Him. And I'm convinced that people will believe the Redeemer and the Redeemer's God when they're able to see Him in the redeemed. I want us to look tonight at the attraction of this authentic sign. This, this woman who had something about her that drew people to her and to her God. First of all, there is the attraction of the daily lifestyle. Now sometimes evangelistic opportunities are, in, are, are found, emphasized by special events. And sometimes there are evangelistic opportunities in these courageous confrontations. But the most, most evangel, uh, evangelistic opportunities are available by means of the ordinary lifestyle of a person living his faith in the daily mundane experiences of life. I don't know about you, but I've got one of these remote controls on the television. That's the worst thing you get because, you, you know, about the time you get one story on the news, you've got to think, well, there's got to be another one better. I'm, I'm just constantly going through the television channels with that remote. And the other night I was kind of flipping through the channels and I saw the Baptist Hour out of uh, Jackson, uh, Mississippi. So I tuned into it. I don't normally watch a lot of sermons on television, <laughs> but, but I tuned into that. And you notice these services on these, um, uh, in the Baptist Hour or whatever, the camera always pans out over the audience to, you know, and shows people out in the audience. And they're usually attractive people they kind of zero in on. And I was watching and they zeroed in on this young couple, beautiful young couple, looked about 30 and she had this angelic look on her face. And he was this wonderful young man standing there holding the hymn book and they were singing together. And they panned out over the audience, they, they kind of swept, and they found this couple, this older couple, an older gentleman. He had white hair, and his wife was kind of standing beside him, and you could tell that they'd been, you know, they'd been probably married for years, and they were just so uh, wonderful and warm and sweet. Now I'm thinking, you know, here's an old boy somewhere in a motel room, and he's kind of uh, lonely and discouraged, and he has a you know, a, a cool one sitting there, you know, in his hand, a long necker, and he, he's flipping on the television, and he looks at that, and he sees that couple there. They are so attractive. He's got to long for that. I mean, anybody who, 
sees that kind of an image on television and they're singing this wonderful hymn in a, in a church setting, there's got to be a longing for that kind of thing. And here's a guy that's sitting there and he's lonely and he's discouraged and he's kind of at the end of his rope and he sees this wonderful old couple and he thinks, man, it must be great to live like that and to go to church together and, and serve the Lord together. They are so attractive. Have you ever wondered what they look like outside the church? I mean, what is this woman who has this angelic look on her face, this beautiful Christian? I wonder what she's like in the daily grind, you know, mopping floors and washing dishes and, and changing diapers and fixing meals and taking care of rowdy kids. I wonder what, if there's the same attractiveness about her there. And I wonder about this guy, you know, this person who has this image there that's so attractive on television. I wonder what he's like, you know, Monday morning when he opens his business and he deals with his employees and he handles and transacts his business. It's one thing, you know, in these courageous confrontations and in these special events to have that kind of, kind of witness, but... The real witness comes in the daily grind, in the daily life of making a living and paying bills and, and trying to survive. That's where it really matters. And Isaiah says, They that wait upon the Lord will mount on wings like eagles, run and not be weary, and walk and faint not. And when you read that, it looks like that there is a descending scale of intensity or importance there. It's not. It's an ascending scale of importance. For it's a whole lot harder to be a Christian in the daily grind of life than it is in the special moments of life. And we are studying in our Sunday school class Hezekiah's story in the book of 2 Kings. Here's this man who's dying and he prays and God gives him 15 years added to his life. He's feeling pretty good. He got 15 years guaranteed to live. And a little group of people come down from Babylon to, to visit with Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he's feeling so arrogant and so proud, he just invites them in and he shows them everything, even the treasures of, his, of the palace. He... I mean, behind the doors of your own private life, what are you like there? Oh, man, what do your children see in your house? not talking about what do people see when you come and sit in a church, sing hymns and worship. What do they see there where you are in the day-by-day -day existence? There was something attractive about her lifestyle. Secondly, there was something attractive about the image she portrayed of God. Now, sometimes our lives attract others to us. Um, and, and if we're not careful, sometimes people attach or connect or worship the person rather than the God of that person. Not so Naomi. 
the only thing that Ruth ever learned about God, she learned from Naomi. And the only picture she had in her mind of what God was like was the picture of God as Naomi revealed Him. And it was such a profound thing to her. It's such an attractive thing to her. She came to this conclusion. Your God will be my God. I, I want your God. Um, can you recommend to the people who you love the most your God, I mean your real God? And is this God that you represent and you uh, disclose and reveal, is He the kind of God that, that people would want and love? And what kind of an, of an image of God do others get from you? That's a, that's a heavy question. There's a third thing about Naomi. It was the attraction of her community. Uh, Ruth said, your people be my people. I, I don't know how far we can go along with this, but I think it's obvious that not only was uh, Ruth attracted to Naomi's God, but she was attracted to Naomi's people. They were special. And she loved the people who dwelt together in love and harmony. I don't know much about the culture of of that day, but I know enough about, about it to know this, that there was a tremendous difference between the culture in Judah and the culture in the pagans across the border. And a part of the difference was how people responded to one another and how they lived within a society, in a social structure. And she was impressed by the fact that these people in in Naomi's life were people of love and concern. Let me tell you something. God's people present to a competitive world the attraction of care and compassion. And Jesus said that the way the world is going to know that God is real is when the world sees His people as one. In the third century... Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, wrote his friend Donatos this description and observation of the world in his day. This seems to be a cheerful world, Donatos, when I view it from the fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climb some great mountain and look over, out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the roads, pirates on the high seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdering each other to please applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It's a bad world, Donatos, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I found a quiet and holy people. They've discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatos, are Christians, and I'm one of them. Now, much later than the third century, a man by the name of Ray Stedman put it like this. 
He said the divine strategy with which the Lord intends to bring the world to an awareness of Jesus Christ is to create in the midst of the world a family, a family life, a love shared life, so that men and women all over the earth becoming by the new birth members of that family enter into a family circle that is so unmistakable, is so filled with joy and warmth and love that worldlings observing it will envy it. And like homeless orphans with their noses pressed against the window will long to join the warmth and fellowship of that family circle. When the church is like this, there's no more potent evangelical force. And on an up-to-date night, as up-to-date as this very moment, let me say what I believe about it is that when... The church becomes this loving fellowship of caring, compassion, and is unified as one body to reach out in love and compassion. There is something that, about that that draws the world to it. I love God's people that are truly God's people. There's one last thought, please. It's the attraction of her victory over suffering. Now, I tried to say this morning that everybody goes through some experiences of trial and suffering this morning. I tried to say that this morning. Pagans and Christians alike, nobody's exempt from sorrow and tragedy and heartache, and trials. But Ruth observed that Naomi was different when it came to difficulties. Now, this woman lost everything. She'd lost her husband, and she'd lost her two sons. She'd lost her homeland. I mean, you talk about a refugee without uh, anything. And the observation that, Na that Ruth made of Naomi was that she handled that a different way. You see, the, the real issue is not who will experience trial and who will be exempt. The real issue is how are we going to respond when trial comes? And whatever Naomi possessed to help her face her troubles, Ruth wanted. I got to have some of that, she was thinking. This woman has something that enables her to rise above the, the trials of life. Did you know that perhaps... The greatest witness you will ever bear is your response to trials, difficulties, suffering. I've read it again and again, the story of the Hebrew children, and they were, uh, were going to cast them in and put them in the fiery furnace. You know that story from the book of Daniel. And here are these pagans, Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of them. They took these young men who, because of their faith, would not yield to the demands of a pagan king. And they threw them in this fiery furnace. And, 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 and the question is, you know, what's going on in there now? And they looked inside and they said, well, they're walking around in there. And they're not burned. They're not scorched. They're not hurt. And we put three in there, but... There are four in there now, and the fourth has the appearance of the Son of Man. That's a term, the Son of Man as a term, 
in the book of Daniel refers to, the, to, to, to God, to the Son of God. And you cannot read that without realizing that the only time these pagans ever saw the Son of God was when the Hebrew children were in the fire. The greatest time, the, the, the most obvious example of a godly person is a person who responds to trials in triumph and grace. That's the case of Naomi. Three things, I think, are obvious. Number one, she, she refused, can you? She refused to allow bitterness to make her bitter. Now you say, well, what about um, when she got back and they said, your name is Naomi, which means pleasant one. She said, don't call me pleasant one anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I tell you, even though life was bitter for her, she was not bitter about life. Now you need to read the whole book. She, her response must be judged by the whole book and it is obvious in the whole book that here was a woman who had every reason to curse God and walk away and be bitter but she wasn't second thing she she left can you the explanation of her misfortune to God notice the name Naomi used of God she called him in verse 20, El Shaddai, the Almighty. Now that's not the, the name that folks used of, of God. The usual name is the name Jehovah. She called him El Shaddai, El Shaddai. She called him God Almighty. It was an unusual application of his name. The word means hope of God's protection in time of uncertainty. Let me tell you what she was saying. She was saying, life has been bitter for me. I have lost everything dear to me. But I've come to know that God is almighty. And I have the hope of His protection. Finally, she learned, can you to look to God for the provision of providence. And so she says in verse 22, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's go to work. Because I have the confidence that God is going to make provision for us. Now, if I'm listening to somebody share his testimony tonight, and I thought about it, and we had a little time, extra time, I was going to do it, and we didn't. If I'm listening to a person stand up tonight and give his testimony, I'm going to do a little checklist. How bitter is that man about his problems? And is he one that lives in the hope of God's protection? And has he understood? And does he communicate by his life and by his lips? 
that God is in control and God is going to take care of him. And if that check is in the affirmative, I tell you, I'm what he has to say. It is true that we need to be careful what we say. I'm here to remind us we need to be careful how we live. Let's pray together. My Father, I pray that you will touch our hearts concerning the authenticity of a life that demands to be heard and the courage then to share. For I pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. We're going to sing 315, a hymn. There's room at the cross for you. There are three invitations tonight. Listen to me carefully while you turn. The invitation for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. I, I have, I'm absolutely convinced, I'm certain of this, that everybody here who has been saved can point to somebody's life not maybe somebody's witness or what somebody said or somebody's sermon, but the attraction of somebody's life. A mother, a friend, a neighbor. Maybe somebody you know, you've observed, that person has something I want, I need. Maybe you want to give your heart to Christ tonight. Or maybe you're that person who is aware of the fact that you're being observed. And you must uh, admit that in the daily walk, not on Sunday, but outside of Sunday, your life is really not 100% of what you present it to be. Or maybe you need to come tonight and join this fellowship of believers. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.